Misread is a book podcast where we review books, discuss topics, and provide social commentary on what's happening today. Well, welcome to another episode of the Misread podcast. My uh, name is Cassie. And I am Jolene. And we have a very special guest today. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that this is going to be a great interview, a great podcast, and we're going to get a lot of information. You know, you guys continue to like, subscribe, comment. And this is going to be one of those episodes because we've got an amazing guest. So excited. So let's get right to it. We are excited to announce that we have a very special guest with us today. She is a Canadian-born, award-winning author that has not only made an impact on Canadian literature, but literature around the world. She has written screenplays, essays, novels, and continues to deliver strong, engaging stories that keeps readers wanting more and more. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Heather O'Neill. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Heather. My pleasure. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Perfect. Awesome. We are so happy to have you here, especially being a fellow Canadian. Uh, that's very, very important to us, you know, to read literature from Canada. Yes. Sometimes, you know, we don't always tap into the talent that we have homegrown. So it's definitely a pleasure to have you here with us um, to do this interview. Oh, yeah, I'm delighted to partake in this. <laughs> so, for the whole time, my dogs are going to try and get my attention. They'll already see that it's divided elsewhere. That's fine. What kind of dogs do you have? I have a chihuahua and a small little mutt that I found um, when I was uh, in the Bronx. And it was oh. living in a project building in the basement. So, I have a little American dog and a Canadian dog. Nice. Nice. That's sweet. (laughs) Uh, Which actually segues perfectly into the first question that I had for you, which was, I understand that you're born in Montreal, um, but I believe you were raised in Montreal and in the United States in the South with your mother. Is that that accurate? It is. um, My parents split up when I was five, and my mother took me um, to live in the south where she was from she was born in uh, Virginia so we went kind of and lived um, a peripatetic life for a while um, in Virginia and then Georgia and West Virginia and down the south and Louisiana so I did that um, I did that sort of tour for a few years and then she put me on a plane and sent me back to live with my dad in Montreal wow And so you were raised by your father, and in some of your interviews in the past, you said that he was big on watching gangster movies and doing tough guy stuff. And I noticed in the in the characters in your books, sometimes they indulge in breaking the law. So I was wondering, how does your upbringing influence your work? Um, in that sense, I mean, I think I was sort of um, born to be a poet because my brain works in such a screwball way that I would be absolutely incompetent at anything else, but um, I discovered writing, and I was like, oh, this is um, perfect for someone who sees the world in um, an absurdist sort of manner. So I think I was dropped off in my little egg (laughs) 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 into this world of um, kind of lower-class criminals, and I grew up in that world, and so my and I always kind of saw that world in a in a very rose-colored way and, and a lot of 
so the people who raised me and were kind of the philosophers in my life and the people who loved me were all these sort of down and out, very seedy characters. So I always, so that's kind of influenced um, the themes or sort of the background of what I, um, the world, the geography anyways, uh-huh. of, of my literary landscapes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I know in Lullabies for Little Criminals, that was your debut novel, and it won multiple awards, including a Canada Reads Award in 2007, so congratulations with that and your many accomplishments. Um, the novel does follow the life of a young protagonist who has a very tumultuous life of, you know, drugs, sex, abandonment. What was your inspiration for this character as her life continues to unfold? Her in particular. Um, Baby was... Um was like portrait of in, of a poet as a young child in a way and um, she was very much sort of the most poetic or perfect aspect of me I remember when I did uh, I wrote the book it was so interpreted as autobiographical because in a sense it is it is the world that I grew up in but um, then people would meet me and they would be I would just see their face fall when they realized that I was not baby because baby is sort of almost this mythic embodiment of innocence who, you know, um, is just able to interpret the world in such a beautiful way. And then they were like, wait, um, you're not baby at all. You're an imposter. Where is baby? Bring her here. I love her. She's like this, um, she is uh, a perfect part of my heart, but it, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm just a regular flawed person. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So in a way it was like, it was the idea of, of grace as a child. I wanted to capture that sort of like that, that state of grace that we exist in. And one of the things I've always, um, thought was important was the idea that a child cannot fall from grace no matter right. what happens to them. So no matter what baby is going through, she's still existing yes. in this state of childhood grace. You did a talk at the Walrus where you talked about the multitude of women. You mentioned the portrayal of women, the passive qualities that are often attributed to us. And uh, going back to your book, The Lonely Hearts Hotel, one of the reasons I fell in love with it is because Rose, one of the main characters, stood against the idea of what a woman should be or what a woman should represent, especially at that time. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that character means to you? Um, Yeah, Rose was such an interesting character for me because she was one of the... Probably the character that I created that was the most surprising to me, she sort of, um, she became completely, she overtook the narrative, and, like, when I began the novel, I had no idea she was going to be the psychopath of them all, (laughs) and the darkest, most fearful one. Yes. It was almost like once she, I, she was born, and they found her body in the snow, like, her, her, her origin begins sort of in an attempted homicide, which she, as a baby, magically survives. Mm-hmm. And then as she started growing, she just became 
so much more powerful than I expected. So she just took over the narrative and it was like, no, Heather, this is how it's going to go. I'm going to be running this show. I know you've created me in your typical world of um, abusive men, but watch what I'm going to do. And it was interesting to me because she, I was, while I was writing it, she kind of unearthed all this rage that I had and she made me realize how angry I was and put a lot of stuff in perspective Mm-hmm. in my own past and I feel that um I just learned so much from her and then when I was done the book I felt I was such a stronger person yeah, so I was wow. like I spent a lot of time with this woman named Rose and like watch out nobody messes with me from now on <laughs> <laughs> so your characters almost like influence you in a way and kind of it's like therapy almost your your writing yeah I do feel um for me the character when I when I write my novels, the characters become so real to me, and I've yeah. always sort of um, with other novels too. Even as a child, I never really seen that there was a difference between real life and fiction. Mm. And a lot of fictional characters that I read growing up, they seemed to me as actual friends who spent time with me, yeah. and I never mm. sort of dis- dif- differentiated between them and um, people that I met in the real world, which always annoyed people in the real world, too. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? You can't have imaginary friends. I'm right here. Um, I relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's probably only natural that when I started writing and creating these characters, they seemed to me like actual people I was spending time with and getting to know. And, um, yeah. And they, they inspired totally you as well. Yeah, and they and they don't. And by whenever it's by the time I'm finished novel, they, it doesn't even seem as though I created them. I just somehow helped them along, and then when the novel's done, it just feels like um, they have abandoned me. And I'm like, why are you <laughs> <laughs> Except for actually, when I was finished, because um, I always feel sad when I finish a book to say goodbye to the characters. Yeah. But when I finished The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, I was so happy to get say goodbye to Nico, uh, <laughs> Nushka and Nicola. I was like, goodbye, good riddance, you nutcases. <laughs> <laughs> now that you brought up uh, The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, that actually, it's interesting that you say, you know, sometimes you do feel like you kind of miss the characters, but with her, you didn't. I noticed that there was a seven-year gap between when you wrote um, Lullabies for Little Criminals and when you wrote The Girl Who Was Saturday Night. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow, though, I find that the, they're, all, they're like contiguous to each other. I found that they're, they're, there's a lot of similarities between the characters. Um, a lot of the themes, you know, even with their, fa- their attachment or relationship with their father and exploitation. Was this deliberate? Is, was this kind of like your way of not letting go of baby, but kind of recreating her, or am I, or is was it two separate, separate novels? No, in a sense, they are, um, they are very similar, like, even geographically, they take place, um, across the street from each other, mm. and there's one point, um, where I actually have baby walking down the street, but only a few readers have point, I think maybe three or four have, like, DM'd me, um, on Twitter being like, I hate to bother you, but the girl in the hat, am I crazy? Was that baby? <laughs> and 
And I'm like, yep, I just had her walk by the novel. Wow. <laughs> like a little cameo. So they did sort of um, intersect, and they took place in the same time period. Um, so, yeah, they were they were very um, similar, those two novels. In a, in a, um, I mean, one is about childhood, I think, mm-hmm. and the other one is about um, the very end of childhood, and mm-hmm. it's the sunset of childhood. Right, right. There's actually a quote that you have in um, The Girl Who Was Saturday Night that really resonated with me. Um, And it was that, uh, the quote was, You should beware of motherless children. They will eat you alive. You will never be loved by anyone the way that you will be loved by a motherless child. That, I I just, there's something about that that just really stuck with me. Can you just elaborate on that quote and what it means? Um, I think that, uh, well, all all my characters have been motherless and I didn't even Mm. it's funny when I turned in um, the Lonely Hearts Hotel to my editor she was like oh interesting it's um, motherless children again and I was like oh I didn't even realize that I forgot (laughs) to give them mothers I always forget (laughs) because it just seems um, like part of my um, existential state has always been that of a motherless child um because that's how my that's how it played out for me in my own biography and I think that not having a mother sort of it's an interesting thing in the world because you kind of end up having to raise yourself and then you have this enormous absence of love which creates Mm -hmm. a sort of monstrous heart which wants to love everything as though it's a mother, even though it's um, even though it's a complete stranger, and even though it's um, a painting on a wall, you have this great um, un, unmet desire for love that can be attached to anything. But at the same time, you have that um, it's it's a ferociousness that also nobody can kind of. Um, yeah, fulfill. Appease, yeah, mm-hmm. and fulfill. Yeah. So, yeah, I was like, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, speaking of childhood, you did a talk where you were speaking on the terrible childhood of literary giants. And you said of the author Maxim Gorky, you said, he discovered that joy and not anger was the bolder, more terrifying stance for young men to take. And I really connected that with Pierrot, Uh, Mm -hmm. the other main character in the Lonely Hearts Hotel because he is abused early on in his life and it follows him for the rest of his life. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, it's interesting because for me, the way... Because I'm always interested in how children... How is it we survive abuse? And which is one of the fundamental questions of the Lonely Hearts Hotel. And can you love your broken self Mm -hmm. because once you I mean a lot of times what what holds us back from recovering from abuse is trying to find this previous self the -hmm. self who was not abused and kind of you're like who am I supposed to be before this abuse happened but the truth of the matter is once once you're abused it can't be undone and it changes you on a molecular level and to so the greatest act um of courage is to be able to love yourself and to accept that broken self as you 
as a rebuilt, um, wonderful, powerful entity. And sort of, and Piero's dilemma throughout the novel is, will he be able to do that? Will he be able to love his broken self? And he's so, because he he becomes so subsumed Mm -hmm. by melancholy that it, he, he just can't find a way to do it. He's so filled with guilt and remorse. So Piero, in a way, is unable to survive his childhood. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really good, um, you know, the way you described that and went into that, because I think a lot of times our idea of what masculinity is, is completely different than what it actually means to take a stand and be able to accept yourself. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of men do feel that, do feel that sometimes facing yourself is actually harder than, yeah. you know, being angry or facing the world. Yeah, and he never, um, I mean, the, one of the beautiful things about Piero, I mean, I, I love Piero, mm-hmm. um, is he, he never externalizes his rage and he never, he never takes out what happened on him. That's true. To other people. He just takes the burden himself. And I feel that a lot of, um, especially men, they're taught to, always um project their anger and rage onto other people and that's how some way it will cure it or it just creates more sort of abuse in the world and more um more tragedy so it's um it's almost seen as yeah not masculine to just deal with your sadness which Piero does and it makes him almost um some people have described as as uh a feminine character but then it's like I, I don't like but see that even I don't like that dichotomy how we yeah. and it, it it does a disservice yes. to women and also to men that they are unable whenever they want to um, have a certain type of personality that's maybe uh, more softer and reflective than why should it be called feminine when that mm-hmm. should um, also be just part of masculinity exactly well, actually, Pierrot is one of my favorite characters in the book, and he often brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> but even, even as he was going through what he was going through and the way that he was handling things, I never felt like he was feminine. I actually thought he stood in himself, and I thought he was, um, he. I don't know if I want to say courageous, but like you said, he didn't externalize it, he internalized it, and so he turned his pain against himself. And yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, and it's almost it. It's a it's a moral question too that's yeah. posed in the book because Rose actually is the one who ex- is able to externalize her anger, and she she looks at it objectively and sees what hap- what has happened to her is in large part because of um, systematic injustice in society, and then she realizes, well, if this is a world that is structured in a way to oppress me, then I don't have to follow its rules. And um, so she has very, makes very morally ambivalent choices in her own um, self-interest. Whereas um, Piero is a much more moral character and he can't do things that he thinks, he, he believes in a fundamental sense of right and wrong. So yeah. he doesn't want to participate in certain activities that he sees as wrong but um 
he does internalize his problem too. The reason he can't um, overcome this abuse is because he sees it as his own fault. Right. Which Rose totally doesn't. She's just like, we were belt, dealt these bad cards and let's change this. Mm-hmm. But um, Piero constantly comes back to his own sense of guilt and his own sense of um, just sadness and disgust with himself. And that's why he turned. He's battling always with himself, yeah. whereas Rose is battling with the outside world. So when he battles with himself, he becomes self-destructive. And speaking of Pierrot and Rose and their love story and how you're saying she's she's that strong person and she was she she fought the system whereas he was more internalizing. I felt re- reading it that although their love was so big and so beautiful, Pierrot had demons that Rose's love could not conquer. And I was wondering because it is a beautiful love story, but it is also tragic. What was your inspiration behind their love story? Um, it's, I don't know. It's actually, when I first, because most, the world itself, like, of this book, I had found um, this chat book that I had written when I was 22 years old. Right. And um, it was called The Romeo Hotel, and it was, I had tried to write a novel, and it was, like, five pages, and, um, with all these different characters. I'm like, how in five pages have you introduced, like, 36 characters? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the two characters I was, that I kind of took from that little chapbook that seemed interesting to me were, um, Rose and Piero, and when I first began the book, um, I had not set out for them to be lovers, but I put them in the same orphanage and I wanted them to somehow end up running the underworld of Montreal and I put them both in the same orphanage and then they just, they fell in love and it seemed so interesting to me because they were, um, their love for each other, especially for Rose, I think, because when they go looking for each other after they're separated, they're sort of looking for their innocent selves and they mm-hmm. kind of descend into this squalid underworld and they both are always looking to find each other because they have this idea of romance and a romance and a romantic life that they could live together when they were very small so they're kind of trying to find each other so they can live that romance and see if it can exist in the world so um yeah and I just be honest I'm a bit of romance I love uh, romance mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we all do a little bit <laughs> <laughs> kind of describing it and them like reuniting and all those pretty little scenes and, yeah um, so yeah I just wanted to write a, it started turning into a love story and it just got the better of me I was like oh this would be an epic <laughs> romance they're so adorable together and it was it is an epic story an epic love story. Actually, speaking of Montreal, in your work, you portray Montreal in a light that I haven't seen other other authors do. It's whimsical, it's gritty, it's romantic, and it's exciting at the same time. I was wondering, what's your connection to the city, and how does it influence you? Um, well, because I spent most of my life here, I've always... Um, I do love the city. Like, I just have this sense of, um, I love its 
the absurdity of it and how, you know, this is going to completely fall apart because we had the mafia in control of the infrastructure for so long. Right. <laughs> like, oh, this is all going to just fall apart one day. We just enjoy it <laughs> while we can. And um, I like the whole bohemian quality and uh, growing up there was less of a sense of a class divide than there are in other cities. Mm-hmm. And um, I just like, and it's interesting because then with the first novel, I kind of created a Montreal, which was like the Montreal that you see has the same geography, but I made it into a more magical Montreal because it was perceived through the eyes of a 12 year old. Right. And then for the next book, I created that same world and then made it magical realism so I've sort of started to create this alternative island of Montreal in my books that seems just like the real one but um, obeys more the laws of physics and strangeness of um, a child right. and, and in a sense of danger <laughs> so I was talking to someone the other day like with uh with children, like, their sense of what is dangerous, like, the, they're constantly walking across the street in the middle That's of so traffic, true. like, wah dee da But then they're afraid they're of a person who's living underneath their bed, you know? And yeah. it's, um, so I wanted that kind of um, strange physics to exist in this Montreal. That's awesome. It's almost like a fairy tale Montreal. It is. I was actually talking to friends about it, and I'm from Montreal, and it's hard for me to, when I read an author that is from the city or anything that's written about the city from a fiction standpoint, it's hard for me to lose myself in the book because I I know exactly what they're talking about. I know exactly what neighborhood they're talking about. But in your books, I actually lose myself, and I, I see Montreal through another another lens and I'm like wow my city is so magical and it is so beautiful so I really I really like that about your style of writing oh thank you well I want to get a little bit personal I'm the I'm the nosy one out of the two so (laughs) (laughs) and I know in your interview with Fleur magazine last year uh it was brought up that you had a daughter at the age of 20 while you were finishing your studies at McGill and you raised her as a single mother. Is it, you know, I would just love for you to tell us a little bit about that time in your life and if you have advice for other single mothers out there that are pursuing their dreams while taking care of their children. Um, well, there's no way around it that it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) I think the best advice I got, actually, um, one day... I was just weeping when she was two years old because she, uh, my daughter was just completely um, being irrational, let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, someone was like, well, she's not going to be two forever. And I was like, it's true. <laughs> she, she's not going to be two forever. So it does, um, it does get easier. But um, for me, first, I would just never recommend having a baby at 20 in this, um, the way society structured, yeah. it's just, um, impossible right now. So, um, Kylie Jenner can do it, but that, <laughs> she's, a, she's a zillionaire. Guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the benefits. I feel like she should tweet a warning. 
okay, guys, but don't you do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it was, it ended up um, being a sort of, even though it was so difficult, it was a magical time for me and it was a funny uh, experience to be so young and then raising a kid because my per- my personality was not uh, fully formed. So it was kind of an old school childhood where there's no helicopter parenting. There's mm. just, uh, we just seemed, it just seemed like she was this strange little um, demon who had appeared beside <laughs> me and I had responsibility for. <laughs> so I just put her on the back of my bike and I'm like, hey, if you insist on following me everywhere. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I had, I had very, um, so those are Miguel, and uh, yeah, I had very ambivalent feelings towards motherhood, which always end up um, for very funny stories about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love how transparent you are about about the struggles and, you know, what it's like to be a single mother and to have a, a, a child at a younger age. So I definitely appreciate you for letting us into that part of your life. Beautiful. Yeah, and I find it's because one of the things, too, it's always sort of, it has been taboo and it but that's one of um a taboo that's been uh, a lot of women are breaking lately yes. just you're not allowed to speak about how difficult it is and yeah. how overwhelming it yeah. is because then it's seen as um some sort of as though you're saying you don't love your child exactly. and it's like, yeah of course i love the child i'm just saying she's a living walking nightmare (laughs) (laughs) a reoccurring one (laughs) a cute one but still (laughs) nice i was actually wondering what do you love about being a writer because i know there's a lot of research that goes into writing especially when you write about a specific period of time so do you revel at the process or do you get stuck sometimes um, I do always, I do get stuck, but I usually, um, try and push through it because, um, the odd thing about writing I find is a lot of times when I think I'm conceiving of something that's absolutely brilliant and, um, I, I'll even pause. I'm like, look at me go. I'm like a genius. <laughs> and then I go back like scribbling away and then I'll read it the next day and then it's just awful. <laughs> But then, but then there are times when I'm struggling and it just, um, each word seems to be like painful to get out, but then it ends up being actually wonderful. So I kind of have to just put in the hours and not trust those, um, feelings of inspiration because they're always a lie. But, um, but what I, I I mean, I, I absolutely love writing. It's kind of, um my favorite part of it is when you when you lead your brain down some strange logical path and then it starts to make these strange leaps of reason that then in turn make sense I find that just kind of a joyous process mm-hmm. so sort of the, the poetic the poetry of it mm-hmm. um, I really enjoy and it just enables me to feel um, it's like you're creating a life philosophy and it allows me to interpret everything around me um, in a in a sort of state of joy and beauty. So it always, um, it's a form of expressing mm. 
happiness in all its sort of strange, even melancholic side. But um, I've long lost the question. (laughs) (laughs) No, you answered it. You answered it. it. You did. (laughs) It's always good to get the insight from the writer itself on how, what the process is like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, who- yeah, so actually sometimes though when I do get stuck I will often um, read something because I find it kind of um, it just like flushes out my brain and mm-hmm. allows my brain like to use different uh, different parts of it so and if ever I'm really stuck I'll just go read a book and then I come back to my own work anew so I always find um, reading other people's fiction uh, part of the process of writing. Perfect. So who would you say the the authors, other authors that you're most fond of? Other than yourself, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very fond of Heather O'Neill. <laughs> so um, who do I love? There's a lot of... Um, I like to read really inventive stuff sometimes when I'm writing, so stuff like um uh so there's some british writers i really like like deborah levy and ali smith and um i really like the canadian author essie edguyen um i find she's absolutely a national treasure um <laughs> i'm like there's so many people that are coming to my head i'm like who do i talk about um I've, there's a lot of French authors that I've really loved growing up, like Marguerite Duras. She um, was a big influence, especially with her book, The Lover, the idea of, because um, she writes so perfectly about the young body. So I'm kind of, I've always been attracted to writers who write about the alienated um, female body. So um, Margaret Atwood, of course, was a big influence, and um, Jean Reese writes beautifully about the young girl in peril so anything I'm very interested in um female writers and ones who kind of um deal with the young girl at large in the world like go to and it's always so terrifying (laughs) like ah don't let me don't do this to me and it's like no no go but I'm broke I'm young interesting tale yes <laughs> are you currently reading any anything interesting um i'm actually uh reading one of the reasons that i like hesitate at the end of that when you ask that question is because i'm reading for um the giller prize this year so okay. i'm reading a ton of interesting canadian literature but I can't comment on those novels specifically because I've been sworn to secrecy. And, um, but it actually, um, it's been really inspiring because, um, it's made me realize just like how much good and fascinating stuff there is being written in Canada right now. And, um, there's been an emergence of a sort of new Canadian literature that is really exciting. Um, and I'd love to tell you about five, novels but I can't (laughs) so um what was your question have I read something good recently yeah are you currently reading anything interesting besides those (laughs) oh you know what I just read that I absolutely loved was um a book from Japan 
and it's called Convenience Store Woman, and it's about um, a 36-year-old woman who refuses to... She's always worked at a convenience store for the past 18 years, and she doesn't have a partner, and she loves working at the convenience store, and she just feels at one with it, but everybody in society just constantly harasses her, because they're, they're like, you know, you need a spouse, and you need a career, and she's like, why? I just want to live in this... Um, can't I just be without all these people telling me what mm-hmm. to do? Yeah. But it's this absolutely adorable, brilliant um, uh, Japanese book in, in which you are just like, yes, leave her alone. <laughs> Let her work at the convenience store. Let her organize the candy. Stop telling her what to do. And it just gives you a sense of like um, what it's like to be a female and just mm-hmm. try to mind, like just, you want to just like yell from a bullhorn, mind your own business. Right. <laughs> 100%. Definitely relate to that. And all the pressures that it comes with being a woman and what you're supposed to be doing versus what you're not supposed to be doing. Oh, exactly. I know. It's so, like, such when you're young. Like, now I'm in my 40s and I feel like such a relief from it. Now, once you're in your 40s, you're probably like, oh, there's. There's no hope for you. Don't do what you like. And it's such a feeling of freedom. In your 20s and 30s, it's just constant the pressure. Of, yeah. You have to do this. You have to do that. Yeah. You have to do this. It's just like, oh, my God. Then you hit your 40s and you realize it's all just a bunch of lies. It's true. So I say to younger women, actually, do whatever you please. Excellent advice. That's, that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> so... I know that you can't tell us about, you know, the the literature that you're reading for the Giller Prize, but can you tell us about anything you're currently working on? Um, I'm just trying to tie up this novel uh, that I'm working on, which I also um, am really not at liberty to talk about, only from my own imposition. I hate talking about um, works in progress, just because then if I feel, if I sense any sort of um, hint in your voice that you think it's an idiotic idea, I'll just, like, when I hang up the phone, I'll go and, like, burn it all. <laughs> People I never met don't think it's a good idea. So, <laughs> it's um, an unpublished novel. is such a fragile being, mm-hmm. so I don't talk about it. Right. Is she going to be coming out soon? Can we look forward to her? Um... We're hoping next year, 2019. Awesome. Was that an exclusive right there? (laughs) Does everybody know that? Or or is this like an exclusive situation? (laughs) Because that's exciting. Very exciting. Awesome. I had to have a random question. What's your sun sign? Um, I'm a Libra. Libra. Okay. Nice. Awesome. Beautiful Libras. Good spirits. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I've always, like, um, I always get along with other Libras. Yeah. For some reason, I thought you maybe, you might have been Cancer, but Libra. That's because she's a Cancer. I know. <laughs> I was like, I totally relate to everything she's saying. I think we are kindred souls. She must be a Cancer. But Libra is also beautiful. <laughs> it was funny because I was teaching a class in UBC, and um, there was about 16 students, and then someone in their story was um and the short story they were reading out loud they talked about how you have to watch out for leos 
Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord, I'm a Leo. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this going? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I agree. You really have to watch out for Leos. And the entire class was like, Leos are, and it was just like, we went on on a tear about Leos. <laughs> and it turned out no one in the class was a Leo. Thank God. I was terrified of them. Oh, my gosh. I get it all the time. Everyone's like, oh, you're Leo. And then all of a sudden their face changes. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a good person, I swear. <laughs> back away. Slowly. <laughs> I don't think it's as bad as being, like, a Scorpio. So oh, my God. I take pride in that. Okay? <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. We had a great time, yes. I think. This interview yeah, was, it was really fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun, and it was very insightful, and we love picking your brain, and it's had a really good time, and I, I hope that we can do this again when, you know, the new baby comes out, and we can talk to you about that, and even yeah. the stuff that you're reading for the Giller Prize. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we can do, like, a recap. <laughs> love it. <laughs> of everything I read for the Giller, and why I made the list, and what, and how we decided on the winner. Yes. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, that would be exciting. exciting. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much.